Thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to the resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. Okay, welcome to our back to our podcast, Insufficient Facts. Uh, with you today are your usual cast and crew. I am Christian, Raquel, and Kyle. Christian is all of us. <laughs> I am everyone. I am all entities in one body. There's actually brain. one person in here doing all the voices. Yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm really good at throwing my voice and talking over <laughs> myself. It's pretty impressive. Um, so today we have some really cool segments lined up for you. Um, we are kind of in the height of standardized testing season. Um, for those of you who are going through that struggle, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm my, You have my empathy and my sympathy, but we're going to kind of have a discussion about uh, brains and intelligence and uh, things that are really smart that maybe you didn't think that they were smart and didn't, didn't know that they were smart. And they're very smart, but in a very different way than we are. So we're going to kind of lead you through this discussion of intelligence and how standardized tests aren't really the best metric for <laughs> intelligence success. or success. And so don't feel bad if it's not easy for you or you don't do all well the first time. We all go through that. So yeah. we're going to start you off with our um, science fiction science fact uh, segment where we're going to talk about the movie Limitless and how much it, get, it gets right about uh, some of the science it has in there and what where it kind of strays. Um, and I'm going to be leading you through that one. Uh, then we'll have a segment of our recent headlines where I'm going to talk to you about a recent headline about dosing octopuses with MDMA. <laughs> Let's get weird. This is a legitimate <laughs> science study that was done that they got funded for. And we're going to tell you why they got funding for it and why it was an interesting um, research topic. From a scientific perspective. Yes. You know, it's just obviously it's a pretty funny headline, but there's yeah. actual scientific merit to this study that we'll, we'll talk to you about. And then Raquel is going to be leading us through our bizarre science segment to talk about soft intelligence. And if that sounds weird to you, that's the point. So <laughs> she will kind of explain what soft intelligence is. And then we will start to wrap things up with our final segment of the day, led by Kyle, who is going to tell us about the classics. It's basically our classics segment where he's going to lead us through the history and kind of background as to why we have things like the GRE, which is the standardized test that most people take to get into grad school and things like that. It's going to be so exciting. If yeah. you're listening to this podcast in the car, I'm glad you're already buckled in. If yeah. you're at home, <laughs> buckle in anyway. Yeah, you're trapped. We're going to go through <laughs> the GRE hold you down. and standardized testing. Yeah. It's going to be riveting. And why, you know, why it's probably you don't need to feel bad if you don't do well on it. Yeah. This was a tough one for me to get through as someone who didn't do great on the jury. I'm still in grad school, so yes. there's hope for you guys out there. But. Actually, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to that segment. But I think yeah. all of us did not do amazing on standardized yeah. testing, yeah. and yet we're all PhDs. I think I was yeah. I was standing in the cafe as I was writing this, like white-knuckling my way through oh, no. the research. Oh, no. <laughs> We've all been triggered in this room. Yeah. I would just like to share that, <laughs> yes. talking about this test. And then, yes, so we'll definitely have lots of opinions to say on that topic, yeah. and then we'll strong, end strong with... Strong opinions. Strong, strong opinions, yes. And um, today's going to be a day of strong opinions. And then <laughs> we will end with our Lifting the Veil segment, where we talk about what is going 
going on in our lives, and um, there's a lot. Trust me. So you'll you'll want to stay tuned for that that bit too. Okay. So let's get started with this science fiction, science fact segment. Uh, once again, I'm Christian. So let's talk about the movie Limitless. Some of you may remember this movie. Some of you may have seen it, hopefully. Um, just to set the scene for you, essentially, Limitless was a movie that came out, um, I want to say, like 2012, uh, maybe like six years ago now, with Bradley Cooper. And Bradley Cooper played the role of this struggling writer who kind of was down on his luck. Everything was going bad in his life. He, His girlfriend broke up with him because she was more successful than he was, and she was getting promoted, and he was going nowhere with his career, and... And he was a slob and needed a haircut and basically nothing was going right in his life. And he, he had writer's block and um, he, through a series of circumstances, meets this person who um, gives him, <laughs> very illegal, but gives him a packet of drugs that had been uh, put together or created by manufactured by a pharmaceutical company, but these were not yet out on the market. So this was before they had kind of been approved and put on the market. And the drug is what they call a nootropic drug, which I'll define in a second, but a nootropic drug, which means that it is supposed to improve or in, expand your mental capacity. So basically, if you take this drug, you're suddenly firing on all cylinders and you can suddenly see patterns in the universe that you'd never noticed before and you suddenly become a brilliant stock trader and can make millions of dollars on the stock market and know how to do everything and your life drastically improves and you're motivated to clean your house and get a haircut. That's that's what happens. I wonder <laughs> if this is the same company that did the Matrix pill, like red pill, blue pill. Like this is also right. part of their suite <laughs> of drugs. Right. Well, I want the, the other side of this story with the pharmaceutical company that's just like secretly crafting all these. all these. Yeah. <laughs> and never putting them on the market, but just giving them ill-advised to people to hand out <laughs> willy-nilly. Why does Bradley Cooper get all the drugs? Yeah. he He's really into these pre-market I would like to see diversity, equity, and inclusion in the people that have access to these drugs. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's stop Thank giving you. this to just white, white, white men. men. <laughs> we need those drugs, too. No. Um, so, basically, the, the science fiction or kind of the fiction part of this, this movie is uh, that we they this is building on this premise, and this is a myth that I think has kind of pervaded our culture, and you hear said every once in a while is a fact, but it's not a fact. So I'm here to correct you today. We This is built on this idea that we only ever are using 10% of our brain capacity and uh, that if we could unlock the other 90% of our brain capacity, we'd suddenly be capable of, you know, fully using our intelligence and being able to do things that we couldn't before. And we'd suddenly be brilliant at everything and successful. And that would be the the solution to all of our problems. Um, but that is not true. And You're using me, a lot of your brain right now. Yes. Just listening to this podcast, a lot is your going brain, on. Your brain is a very, it's about less than 10% of your body weight, but it uses like 20% of your daily energy just to run. So it's using, a, it requires a lot of energy to run. And this this myth, it's kind of hard to track down where it originated, but it seems to have originated earlier when we kind of had a poorer understanding of neural anatomy and what each part of the brain was doing. So before we really got good at understanding what each 
specific part of the brain is involved in, it was hard. People didn't understand what 90% of the brain was doing. Yeah. So they said, oh, we're only ever using 10% of our brain. And somehow this myth has, has continued to persist to today yeah. and is used in science fiction. This isn't the only movie, actually, where they use this this idea. It was also the one of the main points of the movie Lucy with Scarlett Johansson. That's a more recent movie. But so anyway, there's this idea that you can craft some phar- pharmaceutical drug or a nootropic drug um, to improve your mental capacity, right? A nootropic drug, it is an actual um, term for drugs that are on the market. So there hasn't been a lot of adequate testing to look at how much your mental capacity might be improved um, or you know how much it improves your mental function when you take these nootropic drugs. Um, but it is kind of an active market. Um, a nootropic is really interesting as a word uh, as it comes from its Greek in origin. And if you break it down into its meaning, it actually means mind. Nuo is mind. And then tropic is bending or turning. So it's like mind bending. <laughs> so that's what these drugs are doing to you. Those um, of you who are Avatar, the last airbender fans out there, this is a whole new type of bender. <laughs> The, oh, mind, mind bending. Yeah, yeah. I was like, Earth where bending, is she going? Fire bending, water bending, mind, mind bend. bending. That's the most <laughs> nefarious one. I feel like that's how do you, unless you're like just mind bending people to like make them happy all the time. I, that would be great. I yeah, appreciate but I, that's that. not how that. Would, that's not how that would be used. <laughs> it would just be manipulative. <laughs> um, so anyway, this is in the movie Limitless. Uh, you, yeah, it, it doesn't. You wouldn't be able to take a drug and magically be able to understand complex company mergers and the stock market and make millions of dollars and suddenly be motivated to write your book and get a haircut. That 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 has to come from within. Sorry, <laughs> you can't rely on on nootropic drugs to. Uh, yeah. And you also, you know, to acquire a skill, you have to take the time to learn the skill and invest the time to get better at that skill. You can't magically become a top tier stock market broker. Yeah, I want to jump in and defend the brain here. And I mean, we all compare, we all, I like my brain. I mean, it's all right, but it's all it right. works most days. But you, don't you wish you could work like a computer and just like do stuff super fast? Super oh, yeah. When this movie came out, Limitless, I think I was getting ready to go into undergrad. So you definitely would have appreciated. Yeah. And just that a quick, just some quick numbers here. Your brain is, um, does a million times more calculations than a computer, and it does it with like a million times less energy. Mm-hmm. Your brain only uses about twelve watts. Of yeah, that's like a really, really bad light bulb, <laughs> <laughs> and it does a million times more than a computer can. Yeah. So our brains appreciate are your brain. impressive. So yeah, yeah, protect it. You know, take care of it. Yeah, nurture it. Sleep, sleep. Get enough sleep if yes. you can. <laughs> Get if you're listening sleep. to this at 3 a.m., please stop. <laughs> come back to us in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> take a break. <laughs> take a break. Just wake up at a nice time and have breakfast in the morning. And you know yeah. we're a good morning breakfast. But like, if you're using us to procrastinate and not sleep, you should you should probably just sleep. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so that is my science fiction science fact segment for today. I'm gonna move us on to our next segment now, which is our recent headlines in science. So we were just talking about the brain and nootropic drugs. Now, to kind of combine those things in a system that is not a human being, I want to talk to you about this recent uh, research that has made headlines where these researchers basically took octopuses, and yes, that is an acceptable plural of octopus, is Mm -hmm. octopuses, octopies, 
And Octopodes. And Octopodes. There's, this was this is a whole discussion. But it anyway, <laughs> don't yell at me in the comments about using the incorrect plural because this is acceptable. I promise. Yes, it is. Um, so they took octopuses and they basically octopuses are no, for most of their lives they are solitary. So the only time they come together and meet up is if they are mating or reproducing or looking after their their eggs after they've laid them. So they're really solitary creatures. They prefer to be on their own for most of their lives. Um, and if they encounter, if they are forced to kind of face to face with each other, they won't interact. They don't like interacting. They'll kind of hang out on their own and not really take interest in in one another. Um, so what happens when you're really take bad these... at dinner parties? Yeah, they're just really socially <laughs> awkward. They have social anxiety. They... They're great grad students, though. Okay. Yeah, they work hard. They're like cats of the ocean. Yeah, the cats of the ocean. Oh, can't right. really make them do anything. They come and go when they want. Yeah. And yet we envy their sort of aloof coolness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so if you take these antisocial creatures and you dose them with a non-lethal, like kind of gentle dose of MDMA. <laughs> They actually become more social and like hanging out with each other and become kind of touchy feely. Apparently, they get this kind of like loose body posture. They kind of relax and they kind of just start hugging each other. This is all like literally how the researchers described what yeah. happens, by yeah. the way. The idea of an octopus having a posture is just fascinating. They're like yeah. little blobs, right? Well, yeah. apparently, if when they dosed them with too high of a dosage, they were just like, on alert and like really tense. Because, Sounds like a bad trip. Because and we'll talk about why this probably happens, but um, they had to lower the dosage to like more comparable to what uh, recreational dose of MDMA would be for like a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to give the the octopuses a recreational dose of MDMA. Yeah. And when they did that, it actually did make them more social and want to hang out and hug and kind of. I don't chill remember out. this scene from The Little Mermaid. <laughs> I know, <laughs> where they're all popping MDMA. Um, no, so why is this, why was this at all like a study that someone thought, I should do this? You know, this this has scientific value. Well. Extremely valuable. Yeah, let's talk about what MDMA does, right? So, Do you want to give a shot at pronouncing it? The 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine. 3,4-methylene-dioxy. There we go. 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine. A.K.A. ecstasy, A.K.A. molly. Yes, those are all terms, those are all equivalent uh, to MDMA. So what it does, right, so MDMA basically ups the production of three, you can call them neurotransmitters or chemical transmitters. They're basically three chemicals that um, are commonly found in our brains. And those three chemicals are one, dopamine, two, norepinephrine, and three, serotonin. So what happens when you increase the amounts of these three chemicals in your brain? Well, Dopamine, if you increase the amount of dopamine, that increases basically your energy. Um, So you feel more energetic, more active. If you increase norepinephrine, this is very similar to adrenaline. So if you increase the amount of norepinephrine, that's going to increase your heart rate and your blood pressure. And this is why I think when they gave the octopuses too high of a dosage of MDMA, they were really on alert because it just up to there. Norepinephrine is also known as noradrenaline. Yes. As well, you would have heard it as that. Yeah. It so, is like the alert neurotransmitter. Exactly. There's another fun fact about dosing that the, someone tried to give an elephant LSD in yeah, the and 60s they killed it. and they killed it. Yeah. There's a really interesting like scaling law. Like yes. even though the elephant's like what, like 500 times bigger, it really only needs like Maybe 10, 15 times more. Yeah. Dosing is really hard. So you can't just take a dose that would work for a human being. And like if I weigh, you know, like Kyle said, 50 times less than 
an elephant. You can't just increase the dosage that I take by 50 right. times for the elephant because that ends up killing the yeah. elephant. So there's these co- it's actually quite complicated to mathematically to calculate how much is the adequate dosage for a lot of these medications, especially this is really important for like infants and, and babies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's like you need to be very careful about dosages. But Just don't eat that second brownie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, just be careful. You got to do some some careful calculations mm-hmm. before you're self dosing. Um, so we're so norepinephrine is the one that um, is increasing heart rate and blood pressure, and then uh, serotonin is the third one, and that is the one when you increase that, it basically increases the emotional feelings of closeness and bonding and trusting. So if you increase the amount of serotonin and you're in the presence of someone else, then you feel closer to them and more bonded to them. Um, So this is what they were interested in studying by dosing these octopuses with MDMA because they know that in the octopuses that there are these, we talked a little bit about this last week, but there are like receptors for serotonin in the octopuses but mm-hmm. and they know that there is like serotonin molecules present but they weren't really sure if it was being used in the same way as it's being used in humans so in humans we know that it's used for um increased feelings of of closeness and trust yeah. and, and bonding but whether that was going to elicit the same response in octopuses was very unclear because it could be being used for an entirely different purpose so mm-hmm. They gave these octopuses doses of MDMA, and lo and behold, they did find that they ended up being more social and and liked to bond and hug and hang out more than they ever would because they're quite antisocial. So it's um, really, they think that serotonin is really important for social species, right, and and cultivating these feelings of closeness and bonding in, in communities. And like our culture is our species and a lot of our closest relatives as species are very um, communally bonded and, and social ties are really important. So That is so crazy that you can just give something a drug and it just immediately loves its neighbor. That is so wild. Well, right. I don't know if they really love their neighbor, but they are more curious about their neighbor. And right? they feel they feel yeah. They want to be closer and yeah. feel closer, so the yeah. But it's, it's the openness because we always joke about like, oh, you can't just take a pill to solve it. But like, it seems like in this case, yeah. like octopuses are really getting along. Yeah, I was thinking when uh, when I was researching this that maybe that's what couples and couples therapy needs is just a mild some while, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Yeah, while they're in couples therapy, you know, Increase just to the serotonin. facilitate openness and bonding. And <laughs> maybe that's what couples therapy is missing. I have heard that doing LSD and doing therapy at the same time induces a similar state of as if you had been meditating for like 50 years. Like super zen. Intense. So maybe it's possible. Maybe. We should talk to someone. Yeah, <laughs> we should. Uh, listeners. <clears throat> <laughs> If you have any experience in, in let's share your personal Let experiences. Let us know. With... If you and your partner are struggling. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So there actually is scientific value to this study, right? Yeah. This is not just like scientists going crazy with funding and being like, what could I do with this money? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to buy drugs and <laughs> kill them to octopuses. octopuses. No. Yes. <laughs> that is not what. Yeah, the conservation of the use of serotonin in animal systems across the evolutionary tree is like something that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So to talk about that a little bit more, I'm, I'm kind of, that's the end of my MDMA segment, <laughs> but I want um, Raquel to kind of give us an intro as to like why these squishy blobby things that look so different from us 
um, actually have really similar intelligence and are actually highly intelligent creatures. So I'm going to let her take her segment away. Yeah, so now we're going to get into the bizarre science segment, and you're listening to Raquel. (laughs) So we're going to talk about soft intelligence, and soft not meaning that it isn't um, really fascinating and forceful. I think their intelligence is pretty darn cool, but soft in the sense that they have soft bodies. They lack a skeletal system. Squishy. Squishy squishy intelligence. (laughs) So, fun fact about cephalopod, the name, as Christian said, is it has a Greek origin. So, we've actually been talking a lot of uh, Greek lately, and a lot of our words are Latin. Latin. So, this is kind of bizarre. For the bizarre science segment. Yeah, for the audience listening, most um, names of, like, the names of... Scientific names. Scientific names for species or or groups of animals, most of those are fall under a Latin naming scheme. So yeah. they're all Latin names. So like, uh, what's one? I like, I like gorillas. Like the bacterial names, those yeah. are largely Latin. The Latin name for gorilla is Gorilla Gorilla. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> Come again? That's my favorite Repeat one. Repeat that one. Gorilla Gorilla is the Latin <laughs> name for gorilla. Excellent. Or our scientific name. But there's other ones like actually boa constrictor is the Latin name for boa constrictors. Okay. It's one of the few things that we refer to by their Latin name. It's the only thing we can pronounce. Maybe Gorilla Gorilla. Yeah. Some of them get really, really tough. Like Mirunga uh, Angostirostris is mm. the northern elephant seal. I know Exotic. of a frog called Xenopus. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So anyway, Latin names are usually what we're used to. So we're not yeah. used to talking so much about Greek origins yeah. of things, but here we are. So that's why when you say octopus, it's octopuses because the word is uh, of Greek origin. And their cephalopods is like a larger category for octopuses, cuttlefish, and squid. And the reason why it's called cephalopods is cephalo is related to head and pod is foot. So they named it this because it looks like their limbs are literally attached directly to their heads. Head foot. <laughs> head foot, yeah. Head feet. Head, put, head foot organism. So, yeah, really, really interesting origins of the wording, but also pretty logical. <laughs> so aside from the, them being these really cool organisms in the ocean that can camouflage, which is probably something that they're most notorious for, they're, they exhibit high levels of cognition and intelligence. So cognition referring to the fact that they can acquire information from their surroundings through their sensory systems, and they have very wonderfully elaborate sensory systems. They do. But, They're very good at picking up cues and reacting to them, essentially, in their environment, right? That's just, Yeah, they literally have light receptors in their skin. Right, which is, and which makes sense because, you know, if you want to camouflage to your surrounding area, you kind of need to know mm-hmm. what it looks like yep. in order to match the background. Yeah, and have multiple ways of determining what is in your surroundings. Mm-hmm. So they can acquire information at, on large scales, and they can also use that information and apply that knowledge to solve problems. So we've heard of octopuses or even cuttlefish and squid doing really bizarre things, specifically octopuses like opening jars. If you give an octopus a jar, yeah, this they'll would be, figure out how to open it. Yeah, this would definitely be, I highly recommend if you are listening to this and interested in what we're talking about. Go YouTube these onto YouTube. Seriously, you get videos. lost yeah, in octopus videos. So <laughs> many cool ones of them like opening up jars or squishing themselves into jars yeah. or escaping their enclosures. If and... you've made it to the point where you're able to listen to a podcast but you've never seen octopus videos, 
there's I don't know what to I don't know what to <laughs> yeah. tell you. You should definitely get into you that. You are in for yeah. a treat. ASAP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they they have the part of the reason why they're so fascinating is because they also have this they have personalities. Like people who care for octopuses will name them because of their in association to the characteristics that they display in the mm-hmm. lab. They have personality, they can problem solve and they have moods as well. So managing eight arms and that's lined with all these suckers and having this really bizarre skin that is individually controlled by specific neurons, it, it takes a lot of processing power. So that's one way in which that cephalopods, we think, have evolved their intelligence over time is because of their very large brains. Mm-hmm. So compared to rats and mice that we use in the lab pretty regularly, so mice have around 80 million neurons and mice have rats have around 200 million but the most studied octopus octopus vulgaris has about 500 million neurons is that, is that the two spot octopus that is not the two spot oh, okay. octopus this is vulgaris okay. two spot is a different species but mm-hmm. that one is also really well studied yeah. and the number of neurons in amongst the different octopus species will vary but compared to the model organisms we currently use in the lab these guys just blow everyone else out of the water. Wait, so the, the rats and the mice have, what, you said 200 million? Between 80 and 200. Mm-hmm. Between 80 and 200. And the octopus have how many? 500. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if you have a pet rat, maybe if you want something a little smarter, <laughs> next time you got to upgrade to the octopus. Yeah. But though they're actually quite troublesome to they're keep. They're very troublesome to keep. <laughs> they're escape artists. Yes. I, I remember, I think there's a story about an, an octopus that was kept in an enclosure mm-hmm. in a facility or like an aquarium. And it... Would every day, you know, the the keepers would come and they would feed it, and they would see where they would store the food, and then they would at night they knew they remembered or they memorized the rotation of the guards as they would pass by. So this octopus knew when the guard would like left, how long it would take for it to come back around. So it left its tank and like crawled and got the food where it knew it was and then was back in its tank before the guard came around again or something absolutely brilliant so they're so smart like there's so many stories of this from people who work with them of just like how amazingly intelligent they are and they they it has been studied too that like you said that they have very distinct personalities like some of them are shy some of them are bold and they're playful they'll actually play with objects in their tanks this is another reason why they're difficult to keep is number one they're escape artists and number two they can get bored and unhappy pretty quickly if you're not and then they'll squirt you with water yeah (laughs) there's also that they're such big rebels they actually don't even use their dna the same way most animals do yeah that's another thing so we have this it's sort of like a two-part um two-part thing that's managing this high level of intelligence people suspect. It's like they have a high number of these neurons in their brains that make you you, and then they also have this really bizarre way of managing their DNA. Wait, ugh, sorry. Or I their just protein something. production. Go ahead. So we were taught, so don't, with the brain, like the actual shape of the octopus brain or like mm-hmm. cephalopod brains is like a donut. Mm-hmm. And I, Kyle was so kind to bring us Donuts this morning was that intentional? <laughs> We're eating octopus brains oh, no. as donuts. Maybe that that should be a themed bakery, like the octopus mm. brain donut. Bakery. No one steal that idea. I'm yeah, taking. Yeah, it. I'm copywriting that. <laughs> Don't take it. It's mine. Yeah. Mine. So amazing. They are just so you should totally have fascinating. You should have a cephalopod themed party with donuts. You should. That's my suggestion. Absolutely.
and take wonderful care of those donuts as you devour them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so on the subcellular level, so we've talked about the neurons. Within the neurons, there's sort of this, and this is goes, this spans the entire um, life tree. So the central dogma of how uh, proteins are made, the things that um, make you who you are, is that you go from DNA to RNA to protein. And if you want to change what types of proteins you're making, you change the DNA. So and the way cephalopods have been doing it is they change their RNA. Organisms do this as well, but to specifically octopus, they do it at a heightened level. Right. So by by dogma, we kind of mean essentially the the standard way that things work. Yeah. Like traditionally, if you look across most organisms, there's a way that they they do this. Mm-hmm. There's like a kind of set steps that are followed. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that's really bizarre is that they have this way of changing the molecules that they create, not just from going straight to the source, the DNA, but making changes along the way. Yeah, like if you were going to furnish your house, you go to Ikea, you get a bed and a drawer and a desk, and it's there. All the instructions and all the parts of it are in the Ikea, like, central box. Yes. And then you come home, put it in your car, and then you construct it. Instead, what it seems like octopus do is there's just, like, some suggestions of what to do, and then they sort of DIY on the fly. Yeah. So if they need to adapt, if they can evolve pretty much instantaneously just to sort of like invent a new protein. It's like, oh, well, we need this right now. Yeah. It's like the, I don't know, have you guys seen the Lego movie? Yes. And how they're like the master builders. Yes. And they can like deconstruct things and then Everything reconstruct them. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they have like of... a Home Depot or like a forest. They literally go out and like chop down their own trees and build their own furniture. Yeah, or like the yeah. Lego builders where they just take something that's already built as a Lego, kind of take some of it and then rebuild something else yeah. completely new. Yeah. God, they're so cool. Yeah. They are so cool. <laughs> and it's, this is, so there's a downside to this and that is they also have a pretty short lifespan. They live around three years. Yeah. And... Part of that may be for a good time, not a a long long time. time. Yeah, yeah. Part of that may be because of this uh, DNA augmenting or RNA augmenting method that they use. Some of those changes that they make might not be so useful. We don't know. We don't exactly know why they Mm -hmm. have such a short lifespan, but they are brilliant and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we know that enables organisms to evolve is living in a complex environment. You have to be able to adapt, and so. The living environment of cephalopods is really diverse. Their diet is diverse. And their boneless bodies also add this interesting factor that has enabled them to, or rather forced them to find unique ways to survive and avoid predation because octopus are tasty. Right, they are tasty. And the thing is that they're soft. They're soft, which is weird. Like if they have all this intelligence, they have all this neural tissue that they're storing in those big brains, in their big heads, but they don't have any bone to protect it. Yeah. They just have kind of like cartilage, which is sort of like the stuff in your nose, the squishier bone. But <clears throat> they don't have this like shell that we have on top of our heads to protect their brain matter. And <laughs> and in fact, they're because so they're like I said earlier, their brain is that donut shape. But what is running through the middle of the donut is their throat, their esophagus. <laughs> so if they accident, well, this doesn't happen that often as far as I understand, but if it theoretically. were, theoretically, if they were to, if their eyes were bigger than their stomach, literally, <laughs> and they took a bite that was too big, 
it would as it traveled through their esophagus through their throat it could put pressure on their brain as it passes by their brain and like cause brain damage so Crazy. it's just a whole nother way that's of, the saturday for me yeah <laughs> just eating until your brain oozes out of your ears your because ears you've just or your mantle yeah who needs it yeah. Your head. Yeah. We just, you know, especially on the weekends, definitely don't need it. Just kind of, you can leave it by the wayside, shove it back in before <laughs> Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you guys want to just see some really cool images of octopus, go ahead to the Octonation Instagram account because they have really cool um, pictures and videos of cephalopods, cuttlefish, squid, octopus. Uh, that's Octonation, O C T O N A T I O N. Check it out. Mm-hmm. Cool stuff. So with that, we're going to move into Kyle's segment on GRB. Re- on, some, on some bad intelligence. This yeah. is hard intelligence. <laughs> yeah. As in the tests are hard. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't really gain a lot from doing it. Yeah. 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 There's no drugs. squishy and There's no bizarre. central dogma breaking. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you and a pencil and some bubbles A through E. Yeah. And some anxiety. If you're me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably a lot of anxiety. Um, yeah, so this is a uh, this is a segment we call classics. We sort of explore a classical example of some scientific idea or discovery. And uh, so this week we're gonna explore standardized testing. Woo! <laughs> uh, and this comes at a good time if you're a high school student, you're taking the SAT. If you're a college student, you're taking the GRE. You might be taking the LSAT. You might be in graduate school and you're taking something for like med school or the MCAT no matter where you go in life there's an exam waiting for you <laughs> for sure yeah I and we grew up in this period of no child left behind in the like early knots and uh, so everyone ended up taking exams I, I mean it's kind of frustrating I took my exam where I took a pencil and I went down the A's <laughs> and I closed it and I read a book <laughs> That's like me when I was filling out lottery tickets yesterday. I was just like, <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone won the one point yes, six billion dollars. Someone did, which is crazy. Was South Carolina? Yeah, good for them. Oh, yeah, but uh, it raises the question of why we even have exams if no one likes taking them, and they're just so frustrating to take. Why does it exist? Well, I guess to like a zeroth order, you'd say like, well, we just need a metric to measure intelligence and smarts of a student like how good are they at doing arithmetic how much vocab do they know how good Mm -hmm. of an essay can they write sort of on the fly this sounds reasonable right in the real world it moves quick there's a lot of wild stuff going on you got to be on your toes right because when you're thinking about it if you're an administrator trying to decide who to admit and you've got way more applications than you have positions you can offer you need a fast way to go through students Yeah, and the people who write the exams say that there is, this is a good way of just getting rid of any bias by the admissions people. Mm-hmm. Right. They, so they say. Yeah. The, the goal, they, I think the goal was, hopefully, well, maybe, was to level the playing field yeah. and just test everyone the exact same way uh, with this standardized testing. So it was just a metric of performance, like how well can you write an essay or do arithmetic, like we said. But... Right, but there seems like there's more and more tests now, so there should no. be smarter and smarter students getting selected for the best schools and the best jobs. Mm-hmm. So where are all the business people being like, these are the best workers we've had? 
or the school saying, these are the most intelligent students we've had. Mm -hmm. So people are getting suspicious about all these exams. And um, one person got so suspicious that they actually made it a research project. And so this research appears uh, in PL PLOS 1 plus 1 in 2017. Plus. It was led by Joshua Hall at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And he studied with his colleagues how well GRE scores predict a student's success. So they followed about 300 students in the biomedical or bioscience program at UNC between 2008 2015. They looked at letters of rec. They looked at previous work, interview scores, publication scores, and da, 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 GRE scores. <laughs> and what they found wasn't good. There was absolutely no correlation between the GRE score and success. Students at every level of success in grad school had basically the same GRE scores. So if you're going to make an investment in a student, looking at the GRE would be no better than randomly choosing who would do best. Yeah. And and personally, from personal experience, we we can attest to this. Yes. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> so, yeah, don't feel bad if you don't do well on a standardized test. Yeah. Yeah, and sub-schools are really paying attention to this. And like at UPenn, they're completely ditching the GRE for the philosophy majors. Mm -hmm. And this is a prestigious program. UPenn produces some of the greatest thinkers. Yeah. Some great I, lawyers. I know personally that my own department, I think, has been seriously talking about not requiring the GRE as a requirement or part of the admissions process. Yeah. So it seems like UCLA is maybe looking more holistically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, think they're it, it has, talking about and it. now it might become the standard. Yeah. So I think in spring of next year, they'll be deciding on whether or not they will completely right. um, do away with looking at GRE scores. Yeah, and Stanford process. is doing something similar. They're sort of not requiring a GRE for each program. And there's a really good in-depth study on this written by uh, um, Dr. Julie Posselt. Julie Posselt at my very own USC, University of Southern California. Mm -hmm. And it's a book called Inside Graduate Admissions. And she really takes a deep dive into looking at how graduate schools admit students. And how do they actually diversify their student body mm -hmm. and include more intelligence? So I, I just want to finish this classic section with a little reflection on what it means to be intelligent and how that sort of squares up with standardized testing. Because it seems like we live in this world where there's sort of a fetishizing of quantitative number-driven metrics of success, like how much money have you made, mm -hmm. what is your test score, what is your credit score? Like, just how successful are you? And these yeah. numbers don't do a great job of summarizing intelligence because it's sort of this ethereal thing, it's like an octopus. Like, it, we know <laughs> we know it's smart. We, we like it gets out of jars. It can like, you know, escape. It it's enclosing. It learns, but no one's test. No one's giving an octopus an exam. Yeah, telling it. So it's hard to put a number on this. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want students that are going to be the best educated, um, that's one thing. If you want students who are going to do well on a test, that's another thing entirely. Yes, you can yeah. train students to do really well on tests, get perfect scores on the SAT. Yeah, Right. And, but, in, and sorry, in fact, the if you look at the, the data that the SAT itself puts out every year about like the who the top scorers are, it seems like the thing that is most tightly correlated with... Um, top scoring students is how much their parents make. What and how many times they've taken a preparatory course for right. SAT. So yeah. it's, you know, there's a lot of other factors that are happening. If you can afford to spend time after school, like after lacrosse practice or something, <laughs> and take an SAT prep class, 
yeah, you're going to do well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've, you've been given the opportunity to do well on this exam, but that doesn't mean you're intelligent. Yeah. Your score on the SAT is more a reflection of how good you are at taking the SAT yes. than how intelligent you right. are. And Which is sad. So if you're intelligent and you're stuck in one of these SAT prep classes, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the standardized testing, and this is what you know I've heard throughout my academic career as well as, as and I personally have experience with this when I've taken them is really especially for me at least the math portions were always what I score like I scored the lowest in and I struggled the, the same most for with. me as well and it's because the math is like first of all how much are you using that math on a day-to-day -day basis not that often usually yeah. and then b the other thing is these are at least in the these standardized tests is you have you're limited on time on how long you can take to try and solve these problems yeah so the best method for taking these tests is to learn what the kinds of types of problems are and just practicing them so that you know the tricks, like the shortcuts to be able to solve them quickly. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're given three problems that are kind of complicated and given an hour to like solve them to your, the best of your ability. You're like given hundreds of math problems and get you can designate like 30 seconds to a minute on them. So yeah. the more exposure you have with what types of questions they're asking and what the tricks are to solve them quickly is really how you score highly on these kinds of things because it's not something you do in your day-to-day. -day. It's not like you're accumulating the skill sets to be able to do this just through your yeah, everyday and true, life. True education doesn't mean being able to do well on these exams. So this is probably a good time to switch over to our final segment, mm -hmm. Lifting the Veil, where each one of us talks about something that's going on in grad school with us as a grad student. Yeah. So. so this week, I think I, I mentioned this in the last podcast um, that I had a big deadline coming up. So the deadline has now passed and I submitted my proposal successfully. Woo! So that's done. It's a big Congrats. funding. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the big thing on my docket for this quarter. What's that process like for the NSF? Because yeah. you have to ha like coordinate with other people too, don't you? Yeah, so the NSF, kind of what the NSF entails, this is the GRFP. So um, NSF has lots of different potential ways for you to apply for funding, um, but this one is geared specifically towards folks in the start of their graduate career. So either you can apply once before you get into graduate school or once once you're in graduate school. So again, you can apply as a senior during your undergrad. Yeah. You could, right? yes. Or you could apply while you're applying to grad school, if you knew someone. Yes, yeah. So you you basically have two shots of it, but as long as you apply once before and once after. Um, so for me, I applied once before, before I had gotten into grad school because I was working with a lab that um, I was accumulating research experience with. And so I had taken a year after I graduated with my bachelor's to work and get more research experience. And so I was applying to grad school and also applying to the NSF. Um, and then I didn't get it, obviously, um, but it's very competitive. So, and you know, it's it's hard when, before you've gotten into grad school to write a proposal about what you want to do as research when you don't mm -hmm. even know who you're going to be working under yet. And that's that's kind of challenging. But enough about me, you guys. Like, let's let's move on. What's going on with your week this week? So I did take my quiz that I said that I was a little ah, bit yeah, yeah, yeah. worried about. I had nothing to be worried about. <laughs> I did well. Isn't that often the case where it's like you over like? I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes it goes the other way. Yeah, yeah. 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 But this was one of those times. I, I think what's helping me a lot this quarter is that 
I don't really like the process of like lecturing and sitting through lecture and stuff, but the content is really interesting, so I absorb it a lot faster and more efficiently than if it was a different class. So I did okay on that. You know, I, I stressed myself out a little bit for no reason. <laughs> Hopefully I'll learn something from that <laughs> for the rest of the quarter. And then I'm still trying to s- organize this situation with the conference that I want to go to on cephalopods in November. I was told that I cannot register for the conference because the registration deadline passed in September, which is totally reasonable. And I get it. But I kind of want to just crash the conference and show up anyway. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Like, what are they going to do? Drag me out of the building? It's I don't know. Maybe. very of you. <laughs> <laughs> Not just an escape sneaking. artist. Uh, maybe I'll just camouflage yeah, my sneaky, way through. Sneaky, yeah, sneaky, sneaky. Yeah, yeah. Use my soft intelligence. Speak very softly <laughs> to those who are running the registration tables, mm-hmm. check-in tables. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see on that. I've, I'm going to try to do everything I can to get out there because it this conference is only held every three years. You know, if it was every year, I would just be like, okay, I'll do it next year. I'll try to go next year. But I really want to get in there and see what's going on and get abreast to the current state of cephalopod research. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what I've been working on. But, yeah. That's all I've got. <laughs> that's a good thing. It's really, you know, I've also been working on my projects in the lab, which... Kyle was talking about how he was pouring over his code last time. Oh, my gosh. I've been pouring over some code Uh that has not been working. It's like every time I get one thing to work, something else goes wrong. Yeah. I, so I'm just, I've just been, it's been a series of troubleshooting that yeah. I don't know how to do, and I'm just, like, trying to figure yeah. stuff out as I go. I've been, I've been, I'm teaching a lab that is coding to fresh, like, Upper, lower division students yeah. and I traditionally uh, we code in one language called R and so I'm mm-hmm. used to the syntax and the language of R yeah. but this is a Python based um, course so I have some experience with Python but it's m- Python syntax for this course that I'm teaching Yeah, and so I've recently been discovering <laughs> some very some, some differences things, yeah. in, how, in how Python and R do things and it's been yeah. blowing my mind but also being like no wonder I, this was not intuitive for me to write this this way because this is yeah. a completely different from art, how yeah. art does this. But I yeah, love Python. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. It's really a great skill. It's just different. I could yeah, spend, I'm, I'm I could spend to all, learn all day programming. Mm-hmm. Seriously, I, I just love it so much. <laughs> all right. Tell us what's going on with you. I feel like a great pianist as you're typing beautiful code. Oh my gosh. But it's <laughs> That's just not how I feel. I'll get to that yeah. level someday. I feel like I'm chicken pecking. <laughs> I feel like Elton John in the middle of a stadium uh, just oh pounding out gosh. code. What I actually what I actually look like. It's <laughs> just sort of a shapeless soft blob. <laughs> Cephalopod like all over the keys. Terrible so ergonomics. <laughs> um, we had a student in our lab. A PhD student recently defended his thesis, which Ooh, means that congrats. you have done many years of research, you've submitted <laughs> papers, you've written You've a worked short hard. Book, cried many tears. Yeah. <laughs> and you get in front of a committee and you say, this is what I've done. Is it worth a PhD? And they sort of think about it. And then they say yes, and you pop champagne. Ooh, and, and then so, you celebrate. Yeah. So that's been a good week. Uh, it's just nice to see someone from my own lab make it to the other side. Nice. Yeah. It's it's interesting because that's how most universities traditionally do a PhD program, is you 
research and then you pass your like qualifying exams and then you write up your research and then you defend your five years of research at the end. So you defend your dissertation and once you've defended it, if your committee says, good job, you get the PhD, you know, that's usually the big hurdle. Mm -hmm. But um, not every department at UCLA, but UCLA, at least my department, does it differently in that you don't defend at the end of your five years. You take your qualifying exams your first year and then somewhere between your like around your third year, you basically have your your orals where you defend your proposed work. So before you've collected all the data, but that, like these are the three chapters that I'm going to have in my dissertation. And you don't have to have the data collected or finished at that point. Um, but it's an opportunity for your committee to say like, hey, this seems like an issue. Um, you should probably address this before you actually go and do all the work and yeah. you don't have to retroactively address any of these issues. Um, so if you pass that, then you pass to candidacy. So you go from a PhD student to a PhD candidate and then you just have to finish collecting the data and write up uh, write up the work. So there's no big defense at the end. You just kind of like slowly trickle out the door. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much done. I got a job, so I'm going to leave. <laughs> That's like, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's not, this is a, it's pretty different from how most institutions do Do you it. still get champagne? I mean, there's just a lot of alcohol consumption throughout. I think <laughs> I'm not sure it ever like peaks. <laughs> I think it's just like constant alcohol consumption of some variety. They're giving you an IV bag. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for our our lifting the veil segment. You got to see into our our personal lives a little bit more. What's going on with us? Thank you for joining us again today and learning about octopuses and donut brains and intelligence and why you shouldn't feel bad about the GRE. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, you you got some good stuff out of our podcast. Learn something new. So if you ever want to follow up with any of this or have any questions for us or any potential topics, again, you can always contact us on social media. So our Twitter handle, Facebook, Instagram, our website, you know, we're all there. So come and find us, ask us some questions, interact with us. Um, thank you for joining us again today. This was Insufficient Facts, your science-based podcast. Um, with you again today was Christian, Raquel, and Kyle. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Christian, and thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. As a Fact Finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a Finder's exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes our official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, Insufficient Facts.